welcome to episode 20 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Wendy Thurm. Wendy is a frequent contributor to Fangraphs, Getting Blanked, and Bay Area Sports Guy. You can give her a follow on Twitter at Hanging Sliders. Wendy, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. My pleasure, Ross. Nice to be here. Well, Wendy, let's start at the beginning. Tell me what initially attracted you to baseball in the first place. I was born a baseball fan um, in the sense that I wasn't really given you know, much choice to be interested in the game. Um, had a very strong uh, baseball lineage on my mom's side. Um, my maternal grandfather was a diehard Brooklyn Dodgers fan. Um, and that's an interesting story, how I came to become a Giants fan and kind of how that's worked out in my family. But um, I have two older brothers. Uh, both were huge sports fans, and uh, you know, I just I kind of was born into watching and loving baseball, and uh, you know, I I adapted well to that environment. So I've been a fan, you know, from the beginning, um, and um, you know, it, it's waxed and waned over the years, but um, it, it kind of reached its fever heights, kind of where I'm at now, uh, when my oldest son was born. He's 12 now, and my maternity leave happened to coincide almost exactly with the six months of the baseball season in 2001. And, you know, if anyone out there, you know, if you have kids, you know there's not that much you can do with an infant. So I was home a lot and watched or listened to a lot of baseball and kind of renewed my, my fervor for the game. That's, you know, um, but kind of been a fan and been to like a lot of um, important games over the years. So, you know, that's kind of the fandom. On the writing side, um, you know, that, that's another interesting story. Um, I'll make it short, which is I, I had a uh, 20, 25 year career in uh, law and politics uh, after graduating from college, uh, you know, did a lot of different things. And uh, most recently, was practicing with a private law firm, doing all kinds of trial work and traveling and working hard and not seeing my family very much and needed a break from that. So I uh, decided to basically take a year sabbatical. Um, I left my firm and was just kind of trying to, you know, hang out with my kids and kind of get my life back together, kind of be more normal. And um, I just started writing about baseball as a hobby. I started a blog, uh, also called Hanging Sliders. And, you know, I feel like pixie dust was sprinkled on me because I started <laughs> writing and people found it. And then more people found it, important people found it. Um, people like Rob Nyer and Craig Calcaterra, and they, you know, kind of linked to me. And then, I started writing for Baseball Nation, then I got the gig with Fangraphs, and it kind of took off from there. So um, I wasn't one of those people who, um, you know, kind of wrote on the side as a lawyer, kind of hoping to turn it into something. I really just fell into it as a, as kind of a release and as a way to kind of spend time while I was figuring out what the next step was. And I figured out what the next step was while I was, um, you know, doing something enjoyable. We all grew up with wins and RBI. How did you get introduced to more advanced statistics? Well, I i mean, it was kind of slow. I mean, I definitely i definitely did not sleep with, like, the Bill James handbook, you know, <laughs> under the bed um, as I was growing up. I wasn't 
you know, that I wasn't of that, I wasn't of that era. Um, I would say, um, you know, I started just poking around, um, you know, on the internet probably, you know, five, six years ago. I started reading Rob Nyer, uh, started reading Fangraph, started, you know, read Jonah Carey, read, read a lot of people who, you know, kind of do statistics, but in a more kind of storytelling way. Um, uh, and then when I started doing my blog, I kind of picked up a lot of the seminal books. I mean, I read Baseball Between the Numbers. I read the book by Tango Tiger. Uh, you know, I started really kind of trying to give myself a base for that. Um, and, you know, that's kind of how I came to understand it on a deeper level. But, um, you know, kind of the basics of the basics of favorite. I, mean, I read Moneyball. You know, I mean, I'm from the Bay Area, and when it came out, I read it. Um, you know, I mean, the basics to me, anyway, um, are you know they're just intuitive. Um, you know, as as a lawyer and as a trial lawyer, it was always my job to take kind of complicated things, sometimes complicated math and sciencey things, and explain them to a jury or to a judge or someone who might not have you know, a sophisticated background, and it just seems natural to me to kind of use, you know, the best kinds of tools and information that we have to tell the story that you want to tell. So kind of having as many um, data points as you can that are kind of real and supportable to tell your story makes, you know, makes sense to me. So it was, it was a natural for me to kind of be inclined to pick up on that. Wendy, a frequent topic of yours in your writing is the business of baseball. That's what we're going to spend a lot of time talking about today. Let's start with ways baseball teams make money. What are the primary revenue sources from a Major League Baseball franchise? Let's start. We'll start with tickets um, and gate revenue. For some teams, that's the number one source. Uh, for other teams that have been lucky enough to uh, have their local TV contracts, you know, come due. Um, Kind of since the the local TV contract boom started back in 2010, um, you know that's for for some teams that's kind of a larger revenue piece. And those so those would be the two biggest pieces basically: local TV revenue um, and the gate. Um, and here I'm talking about how teams do it individually because there's a significant revenue piece for Major League Baseball that is um, I'm not even talking about revenue sharing, but it's just what is just shared centrally, collected centrally by Major League Baseball, and then shared equally among the teams. And that includes things like the national TV contracts, all merchandise sold that includes um, MLB licensed logos, names, and things. So, for example, you know, for years, the Yankees have led Major League Baseball in sales of um, T-shirts and jerseys. That has benefited all teams equally because they're, it's an MLB-licensed product. And this, the revenue from that sale, from those sales, goes into what's called the MLB Central Fund. And that is distributed equally among the 30 teams. Um, all-star, all-star game revenues and all Major League Baseball advanced media revenues, so MLB TV, MLB at that, all of that kind of central stuff goes into the central fund and is distributed equally among the teams, again, separate from revenue sharing. Then you've got the local TV contracts and the gate. 
Um, and then from there, it would be, um, you know, non-licensed merchandise, so things that are kind of team-related but not necessarily uh, required MLB license. So, for example, the Giants are very creative when it comes to this. A lot of players on the team, as you may know, as your listeners may know, have, you know, kind of animal-themed nicknames. So Kung Fu Panda for Pablo Sandoval, um, Baby Giraffe for Brandon Belt. Um, there is a bunch of other ones. And the Giants have been very creative in coming up with items they can sell that Giants, you know, so panda hats, uh, you know, panda masks, um, baby giraffes, and all sorts of other things that they can sell that all the revenue goes to the Giants because it's not, quote, MLB licensed uh, merchandise. So you've got that. And then you have concessions. Um, you know, all the food and drinks and whatnot that are sold um, at the game. You know, those, those, are the ba- those are the basic sources of revenue. There probably are other, you know, little things that I'm missing here and there. Where do you think there's the most room for financial growth? On a team-by-team basis or, or for the sport as a whole? On a team-by-team basis, what can teams do to continue to um, get their finances booming? Right now, we're in a cable boom. I don't know if that's sustainable. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But do you see another revenue stream that may be coming in the future? Well, I mean, I think teams are getting smarter and smarter about how to maximize their gate revenue. Um, and that entails quite a number of things. It entails uh, you know, more tickets sold on an annual basis. But it also is, um, you know, gets to the to the issue of dynamic pricing again, which the Giants have been the leaders in. Other many other teams are now doing. Some teams, like the Yankees, are holding fast against doing. You know, it, it dynamic pricing can work very well and beneficial for teams when there's, you know, relatively strong demand overall, and then even stronger demand for, for example, you know. Um, uh, Giants Dodgers. Giant, well, Giants Dodgers, you know, um, Giants Red Sox this year in interleague play. Um, Giants are playing at Yankee Stadium, new Yankee Stadium for the first time, and they're playing in Yankees, you know, the Yankees in New York for the first time since 2002, I think. Um, and yet, you know, the Yankees aren't going to do dynamic pricing or variable pricing. The Giants have done both dynamic and variable pricing. Let me just take a second to explain the difference. Um, variable pricing is something that teams tend to do at the beginning of the season. They look across their schedule. They see what games that they anticipate based on you know their prior experience, um, stars in the league, you know teams, the frequency with which teams come into the league, and they price those games before the season starts. Uh, higher. So, you know, opening day was more expensive for the Giants. Opening weekend, uh, more expensive. The Red Sox series, more expensive. Uh, Weekend games are more expensive than weekday games. Again, all before dynamic pricing kicks in. Certain bobblehead games, uh, more expensive. Now, again, Giants have sold out, you know, several teams in a row now. They've won two out of three championships, and they're very good at maximizing revenue. But again, you know, this is some variable pricing is something that a lot of teams don't do, um, and maybe you know some teams will start start doing that, um, which is you know just charging more on the front end for things that you can fairly well anticipate will have high demand. Then you have dynamic pricing, which is um, 
I'd say the numbers are not exactly clear, but I'm thinking something like 20 out of the 30 teams do some form of dynamic pricing. Dynamic pricing happens on a daily basis, and it's something that somewhat mimics what goes on in the secondary market, meaning Step Hub. Um, uh, so, you know, um, a team like, let's say, um, the Orioles last year weren't expected to be good. You know, Scott got pretty damn good down the stretch. Um, I don't, I just don't know offhand if the Orioles were doing dynamic pricing, but, you know, teams in a pennant race and it's unexpected, you know, if you do dynamic pricing, you can start and tickets become scarce. You know, the team can start, um, you know, charging more as games become, you know, more in demand. On the flip side, dynamic pricing can be used to get more fans in the ballpark um, by lowering prices on, let's say, you know, a Wednesday night in July for a game between, um, you know, the Pirates and the Nationals at PNC Park, um, you know, lower, lower that price to get fans in the seats to, in a sense, kind of compete with what's going on at Stuff Oven in the secondary market. So, you know, there are ways to both maximize what each fan is play, paying and also maximize the number of people who are buying tickets from you. Um, and there's, you know, I think this whole um, kind of using technology to both figure out the right price and also targeting fans is in its infancy um, in baseball. And that's going to be an area where you're going to see a lot of, um, you're going to see a lot of growth. And I think there's going to be revenue growth that comes from that. Yeah, there was an article on uh, on Baseball Prospectus, I think about a month ago, about how the Cleveland Indians are essentially moneyballing concessions. They're trying to figure out what promotions actually go well together using numbers and data to really be like, when we offer Wednesday night dollar dogs, they get more people in there on than they do on like Thursday night dollar Cokes. And that that's really going to be the next big thing in terms of how numbers are used in baseball. Right. Um, that was a story written by Ben Lindbergh based on a presentation at the Sabre Analytics Conference. Um, I wrote a, a somewhat shorter, more summary piece on the same presentation for Fangraphs. And what, what the Indians are doing, at least as what was described to us, you know, preseason, is, is very, very interesting. What they do is they, they create very sophisticated programs for kind of testing marginal gains for, for example, bobbleheads. So, you know, uh, 25, you know, at what point is it 15,000 bobbleheads or 20,000 bobblehead giveaways or 25,000? At what point are you, number one, getting more fans in the stadium, but number two, gaining more revenue when you factor in what the cost of the bobbleheads are? So they're doing, you know, the Indians, I mean, they talked about, it was Alex King, who's kind of the new director of marketing for the Indians, and talked about it's not just for them, fans in the seats, but kind of maximizing revenue for each game tied to a promotion. Now, you know, the Indians have had just atrocious attendance so far this year. They're last in the American League, last in the in the league, I think. I think they're even worse than the Marlins. And a lot of people are scratching their heads because the Indians dropped their ticket prices, they dropped their beer prices, they dropped their concession prices, they're doing all this very pinpoint and sophisticated marketing and the team's doing well. You know, they did some, you know, they did had a somewhat of a splash over the winter and yet at least so far, you know, fans aren't responding. Um, and so it's going to be very interesting to see kind of how this plays out 
because the Indians really are doing everything they can to get people in that stadium, and they're just not showing up. Yeah, baseball reference. Baseball reference. Sorry to interrupt. Has the Indians at their average game attendance this year at fourteen thousand four hundred and eleven? That is uh, even down from last year, which was fourteen thousand nine forty-five. And they did make improvements, and it it just goes to show that signing free agents is not necessarily a guarantee to get people in the seats either. Oh, it's not at all. In fact, the Angels saw both ticket sale erosion and much more substantially ratings erosion last year after signing uh, Pujols and C.J. Wilson. And, you know, there's, there's, there's the Angels' slow start in 2012, you know, didn't help that. You know, with, with the way things are going with the Angels now, you know, we can expect to see more erosion. I saw a tweet the other day from one of the Angels' beat writers, you know, a home game attendance being the lowest, whatever that game's attendance was, 30,000-something, but it was the lowest in something like 10 years. Attendance is down a bit this year across baseball. When I watch MLB TV, I see a lot of empty seats at most ballparks. How big of a problem is the decline in attendance? You know, I haven't looked at the numbers that closely. I did a piece the other day on um, interleague attendance, kind of tracking, you know, where things are um, with with interleague attendance, and that interleague attendance isn't really kind of giving the boost uh, early on that MLB has often touted, uh, you know, interleague uh, as doing. And what a lot of experts have said over the years is, well, when you when you push interleague to essentially mostly weekends in the summer, that's not an interleague boost. That's a warm weather weekends in the summer boost. Um, and so, you know, I did a story about, well, you know, this is going to be a very interesting experiment. And so far, it doesn't look like interleague is really giving much of a bump. Overall, we're not into, you know, we're not into the warm weather months yet, and weather has been a big problem. There have been 18 rainouts already, or snowouts, or postponements as a result of weather, which is as many as we had in all of 2012. So the weather has played havoc. Um, you know, some teams are kind of underperforming, like the Angels, which is shorting attendance. Uh, Yankees' attendance is down, uh, you know, fairly considerably. I think they're now running eighth. In the league, they've been in the top three, you know, for the last, I don't know how many years, many, many years. Well, that's one of the things that that stood out to me the most is some of the teams that are seeing a decline include the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Cardinals, the Cubs, and the Phillies. These are some of the flagship franchises in baseball. What does it tell you that even these caliber of teams are suffering from a decline, even if it's a small decline? I can't pinpoint what it is for the Yankees. The Yankees are actually, you know, playing, you know, better than expected. You know, there there was quite a bit of papa before the season about the Yankees. Um, the Yankees opted out of Major League Baseball's renewed deal with StubHub for the sale of tickets on the secondary market. Um, and they started their own ticket exchange with Ticketmaster. Um, you know, a lot of fans said, you know, just out of principle, they weren't gonna they weren't gonna go, they weren't gonna buy tickets. Um, I don't know how much that would affect attendance as it's reported. Because, of course, StubHub is tickets that have already been purchased and then they're being resold, and the attendance numbers we get are tickets sold. So I'm not really sure how much you know, that's played into it. You know, it could be, hey, um, I'm really glad they're doing well with this makeshift lineup, but I'm not going to pay you know, the prices the Yankees charge to basically go see Travis Hafner and Francisco Cervelli before he got hurt or Chris Stewart or... 
yeah. um, you know, Vernon Wells. So, you know, for Teeter and A-Rod and Teixeira, you know, I'll pay those prices. But um, for this lineup, you know, yeah, I'll watch on the network and I'll root for them, but I'm not going to pay those prices. Um, you know, the Phillies and Red Sox both, both have seen their sellout streaks and the Phillies ended last year, the Red Sox earlier this year. You know, both came into this season with a question mark. The Red Sox, like the Yankees, are kind of outperforming preseason expectations. The Phillies, not so much outperforming preseason expectations. Halliday's been, you know, hurt and not pitching particularly well. Um, they're putting a hurt on my Giants this week, but for the most part, you know, <laughs> not, not playing particularly well. Um, Cogs are a team in transition, you know, and... So, you know, I'm not, you know, each team, there's kind of, you know, there's kind of an explanation. I mean, the Phillies are kind of, you know, I think they're going to be a very interesting team to watch. I just published a story today about kind of all the players they have with no trade clauses and how that's going to impede their ability potentially to do a lot of things that they, they could do to put themselves in a much better position at the trade deadline. We'll see, you know, what they can do with that. Um, you know, I think I think the Red Sox ticket sale, you know, will pick up if the team continues, um, you know, to do well. Um, Cubs, you know, we'll just have to we'll just have to wait and see. Cardinals is a tough one to explain. Very, I'm very surprised about that, and I'll have to look more in detail at the numbers and the Reds too. I mean, the Reds um, and Cardinals, for example, last year had super high TV ratings. Um, and, you know, both made the playoffs. Uh, Cardinals always consistently do well at the gate. Red, less so, much smaller market. Um, so I'll have to look at that and track that. Um, I, I haven't seen anything or looked enough at the numbers to really have a sense of why that's happening there. Yeah, and it's interesting. And I, I wonder, like, even despite the overwhelming popularity of the NFL, uh, the NFL is seeing a, a decline in attendance over the last few years, overall attendance as well. And it, they're used to just selling out every game, and that hasn't been the case lately. And I wonder if attendance is going to drop in all sports just because of the way we watch sports now. When you think about how people are watching sports on giant high-def TVs with surround sound, with their iPads in front of them, if you want to hop around from game to game on MLB TV, you can't do that when you're in person. Now, being in person provides a different experience. You feel the crowd. It's a different energy. But I wonder if the experience of simply watching the game on TV has gotten so good that we're going to see a decline in attendance in all sports. I think there's a lot to that, Ross, and I would add kind of the element of social media as an overlay um, on kind of the HD kind of super viewing experience. Now you can sit on your couch, you know, in a in a you know in a great environment. You've got you know you've got your six pack and your and your snacks for you know one one you know quarter of the price you might you know pay at the ballpark, and you have the ability to you know interact with quote, friends or other fans through social media the way you, you know, might do at a ballpark. Um, you can't high-five people on Twitter, but, you know, you, <laughs> it, in a lot of ways, people say it kind of it kind of replicates what it's like to kind of walk into a sports bar and just, you know, sit around and watch a game with people. So, um, you know, the cost of, you know, the cost of cable TV might be going up, but people might be saying, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to make the choice to spend my money, you know, on that because I can, you know, I get all 162 games or whatever it is. Um, you know, the, the, the snacks are cheaper. I can have my friends over or, and, or I can, um, 
interact with folks on social media and I'll go to fewer games. I've, I've, I've definitely gotten that feedback, you know, just through Twitter and through stories that I've written where people have said, you know, I've done the whole, you know, family four calculation or whatever it is, you know, I'm going to, I can be, you know, choosier and still get the kind of fan experience that I want. So I think you pinpointed a, a very significant issue and something, you know, all the sports are going to have to watch. You know, on the other hand, as you alluded to earlier, uh, both the national TV contracts for many sports and the local TV contracts, um, you know, have, have just ballooned. So, you know, some teams might consider themselves, you know, not, not worse off with fewer fans through the turnstiles and more fans, you know, watching on TV. Um, that, I mean, kind of how teams kind of massage that, both from a PR perspective and from a revenue-generating perspective, is going to be very interesting in the next several years. You wrote a fantastic piece on Fangraphs detailing the status of local cable contracts and what each team is getting and when their contracts expire. Cable has obviously become a primary source of income for many teams. What teams are in a position to get a big new deal within the next few years, and what teams missed out on the boom, meaning they're already locked into unfavorable long-term deals? The next team that's going to strike it big is the Phillies. They're up after the 2014 season, I believe. Um, and I'm sure they'll spend their money wisely. Well, <laughs> um, you know, Jeff Passan from Yahoo, you know, wrote an interesting piece about the Phillies a couple of weeks ago, in which he, he linked to my story on Fangraphs. You know, the Phillies are are in a position because of the recent run of success for the team. Philadelphia being the market that, you know, they're in and their um, lifelong, you know, lifelong, their longstanding relationship with Comcast, that they are, the Phillies are trying to figure out, you know, which route do they want to go? Do they want to go the uh, Mets, Yankees, Red Sox route of starting, you know, their own station, which is the way the Dodgers are now going? Well, that deal, I should add, the Dodger deal is still pending and has not been approved by Major League Baseball. It will get approved by Major League Baseball in some incarnation, but there's a huge outstanding issue having to do with how much of the Dodgers deal is going to be part of revenue sharing. I can get into that if you want. But so kind of the big market teams, New York, um, Boston, and now one team in LA is on the route of, you know, team owned station or at least a subsidiary of the team or a team owned entity. Um, having the majority share um, in the station, like the Yes Network for the Yankees, SNY for New York, Nesson for the Red Sox. The Mariners essentially had decided to go this route with Root. Um, uh, the Mariners were a couple of years away from their deal expiring at, with Root Network, which is a wholly owned subsidiary of DirecTV. It's kind of DirecTV's regional sports network, and Root broadcast now they have the Rockies, they have the Pirates, they have the Mariners, that might be it in Major League Baseball, maybe one other team. Um, the Mariners struck a deal with Root before their contract was set to expire, several years before the contract was set to expire, where the Mariners will now become majority ownership of Root Sports Northwest, which is the entity um, that broadcasts the Mariner games. And will get to, you know, reap the benefits of, you know, the, pro, the, the additional program that's going to go on in the Northwest. I wrote a piece about that for Fangraphs, too, wondering whether it was kind of a bet on C 
Seattle getting the basketball team back, which now looks, you know, much less likely than it looked three weeks ago when the when the Mariners TV deal was announced. And so the Phillies are trying to decide, do they want to go that route? Do they want to, um, or do they want to just go um, with, you know, kind of a cash-in route like the Angels have done, where the Angels have a new deal with Fox, or not, you know, a couple of years old now. Um, it's a $2.5 billion deal over 17 years or something, where they're getting paid, you know, more than $150 million per year, you know, over, over X number of years. Um, you know, the advantage to that kind of deal uh, for a team is, you know, you know what the revenue, you, you know what it's going to be. Um, you know, 150 will be worth a lot more now than it will be worth in 20 years. But, you know, you can kind of, you plan for that and you kind of budget for that and you figure out, you know, kind of 20 years out, um, you know, how you're going to work around that versus, you know, owning your own team where feeling is higher if the equity is worth more, um, but the risk is higher too because the equity might not be worth more. So, you know, um, the Phillies, I think, are in the driver's seat and we'll see, you know, kind of how that plays out. Um, after the Phillies, I think it's the Diamondbacks and the Rockies are kind of on the short list of teams that are coming up soon, neither one of which, you know, is a particularly significant media market. So we'll kind of have to see how that, you know, plays out in terms of, you know, what they can get. I mean, the Astros got a really nice deal from Comcast Sportsnet. Last year was their first year. You know, the Astros aren't a particularly good team, but Houston is a very big market. So, you know, Comcast is betting the Astros are, you know, that the rebuilding is going to work and that when the team comes back, you know, Houston's going to come back and, and watch in droves. And, you know, Houston is it's like the fourth or fifth largest media market in the country. So, you don't, you don't, we forget that sometimes, but it's, Houston is a very large city and a large media market. The teams that were locked in and will not get to take advantage of this boom, um, the Braves, the Braves just before they were sold to Liberty Media, uh, the old owner Turner kind of did a deal with itself because um, Turner is the broadcaster. And the Braves are locked in to – the terms of the deal, I think, are, have not been publicly disclosed, but it's been discussed that it's not a very favorable deal. And it's not very favorable in and of itself or in light of kind of what, you know, the competitors uh, – what their competitors, you know, are, are going to be able to do. Same for the A's. The A's and the Rays, you know, not surprisingly, um, less vigorous, less energetic fan bases – um, you know, always on the bottom in terms of attendance and also in terms of ratings. And neither one of those teams um, is going to be up for renegotiation anytime soon. And even if they are, kind of, you know, query how much more they can wring out of it. Let me correct myself. I think the Rays actually have very good ratings. They more have a problem with attendance. The A's have a problem with both. Um, and then there are teams that have, you know, not great contracts because the team, you know, they're in mid-range media markets with, you know, not terribly successful teams, and even in a boom, it's not going to get much better for them. One of the interesting effects of the cable boom is the erosion of talent available in the free agent market. Teams are taking their money and re-signing their star players to long-term deals. Will the free agent market continue to get worse and worse over the next few years? 
You know, it certainly looks that way. Yes. I mean, I, I think it seems that this that the trend will continue while teams, you know, have an ability to at least, you know, uh, you know, spread that out over a certain number of years, front-loading it, back-loading it, you know, being able to be creative with their homegrown talent. Sure. I mean, that's going to significantly affect, you know, who comes on the free agent market. And of course it will, you know, in some circumstances make those limited free agents, you know, very, very wealthy people because, you know, the the less talent that's on the market, uh, the more demand there'll be for that limited talent, the price goes higher. So, um, you know, Robbie Cano is a perfect example. Um, before he switched agents, you know, a lot of people thought it was moving toward, you know, him not agreeing to, you know, do a deal with the Yankees, you know, he was going to hit the market, not a lot of, you know, kind of quality bats coming on the market after this season, much less, you know, quality of bats with good defense at second base. And, um, you know, now it looks like, you know, switching agents, he's more focused on maybe staying in New York and, you know, if he, Robbie can opens off the market, you know, that's, that's very significant. So, yes, I mean, I think this trend will continue, at least in the short term. I want to shift focus a little bit. You mentioned you were a working lawyer for several years. MLB is currently suing the Biogenesis Clinic to gain access to their records. What are they hoping to accomplish by doing this, and will the lawsuit work? Well, what they're hoping to accomplish, ostensibly, is um, to um, get access to and get their hands on whatever documents still exist relating to Biogenesis and any connection they had with any player in Major League Baseball. The listeners may know, uh, you know, the story broke um, by a weekly newspaper in Miami called the Miami New Times, which had gained um, access to certain biogenesis documents, uh, linking that uh, clinic to, you know, several uh, players in Major League Baseball. Miami New Times, they have their sources. They had a way of getting access to the documents. ESPN also has had access to some documents, same with Yahoo. And none of those press outlets have chosen to share those documents with Major League Baseball, which isn't the least bit unusual. I mean, most newspapers and other media outlets uh, guard their sources you know, quite, quite strongly um, and protect their sources and don't just turn over documents to... Uh, businesses or other entities that might be, you know, interested in the same story. Uh, Major League Baseball has been very frustrated by that. They, uh, the league hasn't had a way to kind of gain access to materials in the same way they did during the Balco investigation back in the early 2000s when there was a federal investigation ongoing at the same time there was a Major League Baseball investigation uh, vis-a-vis the Mitchell report. So Major League Baseball came up with a way to sue Biogenesis in Florida um, under a theory of kind of interfering with Major League Baseball's uh, player contracts by um, putting, allegedly, uh, performance-enhancing drugs uh, in the hands of Major League Baseball players, uh, which in and of itself uh, would violate uh, player contracts and the collective bargaining agreement. So uh, there's this one, you know, they filed a lawsuit. It has one claim. They sued Biogenesis and a bunch of individuals associated with the clinic and immediately took steps to try and 
both get documents and get sworn testimony relating to that document, those documents. So they, I don't know if any depositions have taken place, but according to the court docket, which I, you know, follow kind of every day or every other day, Major League Baseball has, um, you know, they, in legal terms, they've sought documents from Biogenesis and the witnesses. They've, they've witnessed, they've identified those witnesses they want to take depositions of. That, that's a pre-trial. Um, examination where the witnesses uh, sworn and give testimony under oath. You know, I think what will I think what MLB wants to do is gain documents, gain witness testimony, and then probably set up the lawsuit. Uh, I don't think they really have any interest in pursuing a claim for damages against Biogenesis, which is now out of business, or any of these individuals who probably don't have you know the kind of assets that would be you know worth pursuing the case for. Um, and you know, there has there hasn't been much in the press about it kind of since uh since the lawsuit was filed. There was some story uh I'd say a couple of weeks ago, uh linking Major League Baseball to to the purchase of certain documents. That that Major League Baseball had been paying witnesses for documents in addition to filing this lawsuit. Which a lot of people raised their eyebrows about, but like it's it's not frankly, it's not all that unusual for parties to pay witnesses to cooperate, especially if you think that that case isn't going to go to a trial. Um, if you had a trial and a witness got on the stand and, you know, was cross-examined and uh, explained that they turned over documents and gave testimony favorable to party A, because party A paid them $10,000, that witness doesn't have a lot of credibility. You know, whether that would hurt Major League Baseball um, in a scenario where they're doing an investigation and then potentially using that information to suspend players, you know, I'm not sure how much that would undercut Major League Baseball. I'll have to see how that plays out. So, and that's what Major League Baseball is doing. They're trying kind of every way they can think of to get their hands on whatever documents still exist. There have been reports that many documents were destroyed and to get their hands on sworn testimony and then see what they have and see whether they have enough to suspend players. Will it work? It depends on what documents still exist and what, you know, testimony is provided under oath by any of these biogenesis witnesses. You know, Major League Baseball does have the authority to suspend players for either purchasing or having in their possession uh, performance-enhancing substances or substances that are, you know, banned by Major League Baseball and identified in the joint drug program, uh, often that evidence is um, uh, that they use to suspend a player is by a failed test. That's not the only evidence that could exist, of course. So, um, you know, if Major League Baseball gets their hands on documents and witnesses can verify those documents and authenticate the documents, link, you know, linking um, a Major League Baseball player to the purchase of drugs or substances that are banned by the league, then, well, number one, I think Major League Baseball will do their best to, I mean, I don't think they're, I mean, are they on which one? I don't know. Uh, you know, this story has been out there, and Major League Baseball has been pursuing it vigorously. I do think they want to make an example of a player or two. I do think they want to gather sufficient evidence to be able to suspend players who haven't failed a drug test, but for which there is this other uh, direct evidence of a violation. So we'll have to see what documents and testimony uh, becomes available. 
I agree, and it's uh, it does seem like they are are specifically after Ryan Braun and Alex Rodriguez, and I, I guess you can question the logic. And in part, it's like good for them going after star players, but there's also that sort of is that really good for the game going after two of the better well known players? I don't know if it is, especially considering the lengths that they are to do so. Uh, on this podcast, Wendy, we've spent a lot of time over the course of the episodes talking about the Hall of Fame and PEDs, which of course means uh, Barry Bonds has been a frequent topic of discussion. You live in San Francisco. You're a Giants fan. What do you think of Barry Bonds? Well, I mean, to me, Barry Bonds, I mean, the greatest player I ever saw play, and I saw him play an awful lot. And to me, he's a no-doubt Hall of Famer. He was a no-doubt Hall of Famer before, um, you know, the steroid era. And so, to me, he should be in the Hall of Fame. Um, You know, I also think that you know, every I'm I'm firmly in the camp of there's been many eras in baseball where there's been cheating, where there's been unpleasant trees, where there's been kind of off the field stuff, um, you know, that people don't want to talk about. Um, there was a color barrier, you know, there was a I mean there there's so many different aspects of baseball. The Hall of Fame is a museum and to single out kind of you know, the performance-enhancing drug era as the thing to kind of take a moral stand on and to keep players out who um, who collectively we can fairly, you know, look at fairly and say, based on what we know, which is not, of course, 100%, um, you know, based on what we are able to deduce about, what you know, when these players might have used TEDs, you know, they're careers before then, you know, were they Hall of Famers or did PEDs kind of put them over the top? So for me, Bonds is kind of a no-doubter. Um, for Sammy Sosa, for example, would be someone where I'd say, well, there, you know, it's not clear kind of what the Hall of Famer without PEDs. And I think it's very fair to ask those questions. I think having a Anyone I ever think or ever suspect or anyone who's ever been written about or been a teammate of or, you know, kind of that uh, bright line that a lot of people want to draw with respect to PDs and the Hall of Fame, I, you know, I just I don't approve of that. And I think it's um, counter to kind of the mission of the Hall of Fame. And I think down the road it will make the Hall much less relevant. And I think I think collectively as fans and writers who are responsible for voting on it, I think will come to regret that if that's what happens. I completely agree with you. And the Hall of Fame as a museum uh, already does a a fairly poor job of representing modern players. If you go to the Hall of Fame expecting to see a lot of stuff on Ozzie Smith or Dave Winfield or Barry Larkin, there's just not that much there. It focuses much more on players from the golden age of baseball and back. You're not going to see a lot from the last 30 years in the Hall of Fame. And then to start denying players admission because of steroid use, I think that creates more of a problem when you have more modern players not in the Hall of Fame. I I wish the Hall of Fame would just acknowledge both. I look at someone like Mark McGuire and say he's one of the best power hitters of all time and he used steroids. Why can't they just acknowledge both and move on? Same thing with Bonds. He's one of the best players to ever play, and he used steroids. Let's acknowledge both and move on. I think McGuire is really, you know, really close you know, to that. I mean, I think he's right there where, I don't know, it's, for me, he's more on the Sosa side or more on the kind of Bonds-Clement side. Um, but, you know, the problem, the biggest problem with all of it is just, you know, McGuire's admitted to it. You know, Sosa hasn't, you know, 
Bonds and Clemens have, and people can kind of draw their own conclusions about that. But then there's just the people who get kind of swept into it. I mean, the whole Bagwell Biggio thing. I mean, it's you know people taking a moral stand when there's you know no evidence at all that you know other than people's assumptions based on physiques or whatnot that um, someone was using performance-enhancing drugs. And it's that kind of moralizing, you know, I think that is going to really, really hurt the whole. How is Barry Bonds perceived and received in San Francisco to this day? I mean, I can't speak for all, you know, the city and for Giants fans, but he's he's pretty well-loved. Um, you know, huge ovations whenever he comes back. Um you might have seen in the news there was there was a kerfuffle. You know, recently there's a there's a plaque that that's on the brick wall in the in the outfield in the right right field wall um, at AT&T Park that has Bond 756 um, his home run total and it had gone missing, and fans were really upset, thinking that the Giants you know had taken it down and was somehow trying to whitewash their association with bonds and, you know, for to getting good with Major League Baseball or whatever. It turned out someone had just stolen it and walked off with this plaque and the Giants, uh, or at least that story, and the Giants had quickly, um, you know, replaced it. You know, he's, Bonds has been around. There's been talk of, you know, having him as a kind of a roving hitting instructor. You know, the Giants are one of the best franchises that kind of keeping um, keeping their old, you know, their old stars around or, uh, you know, former stars around. Um, at least this ownership group is, um, you know, some Mays and McCovey and Cepeda. I mean, they're so closely associated with the franchise now and there's, you know, homage to them kind of everywhere. I think a lot of people expect and want there to be a Bond statue at some point. Um, and I think there will be one um, at AT&T Park. I just think it's a matter of kind of, waiting for all, you know, waiting a little bit more. I mean, his appeal, for example, of his criminal trial still pending in the Court of Appeals. That should should be decided relatively soon. And, you know, he just had his first year on the ballot. And, you know, I, I think the Giants will wait a few years. Um, but I, I think eventually there will be kind of an appropriate homage to him. Um, and I think it, that will be well received. You've been listening to Wendy Thurm. Wendy's a frequent contributor to Fangraphs, Getting Blanked, and Bay Area Sports Guy. You can give her a follow on Twitter at Hanging Sliders. Wendy, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. It's been my pleasure, Ross. Thanks for having me on.